According to the National Center for Drug Abuse, over 165 million Americans ages 12 and up are currently abusing drugs or alcohol. Of those 165 million Americans, there is a mom, dad, sister, brother, wife, husband, son, daughter, or grandparent praying and pleading that they would stop. Addiction is a subject most people don't like to talk about and is kept behind closed doors. But the Finding Hope podcast will bring light to the subject and give families that are living in shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear, worry, and anger, tools and education to find strength, peace, happiness, joy, and hope. Hello, I'm Amy LaRue, Finding Hope Coordinator for Hope is Alive Ministries and your host for this Finding Hope podcast. At Hope is Alive, our mission is to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. We do this through our intentional next level sober living homes and faith-based support groups for the loved ones of addicts called Finding Hope. Did you know that we also offer grief support groups called Hope After Loss? These support groups are for those who have lost someone due to addiction. If that is you, or you know someone that has lost a loved one, we want you to know about our upcoming Hope After Loss Grief Retreat being held October 7th through the 9th. This retreat will help you process your emotions and press forward on the journey of healing and restoration. This will all be done in a relaxing retreat setting through sharing in small groups, keynote speakers, worship, and self-care. By walking through grief together, God's love can empower you to find strength, purpose, and hope in the midst of your circumstances. You can register to attend at hopeafterloss.today. Thank you for joining us today. On our last episode, I shared a quick overview of my personal story of loving someone addicted to alcohol. And on today's episode, I want to dig a little deeper into my story and share how I went from being filled with anger and hopelessness to finding strength, purpose, and hope. So let me take you back a few years. I met my husband in high school, and we were high school sweethearts. We graduated in 2002 and went off to college together. And we ended up getting married in 2005 and just were living the dream life, I would say, um, just as two poor college students married. And then after college, after we graduated college, we um, moved to Oklahoma and started our careers there. Um, things were going well. Um, he was working, he was a home builder at that time, and I was a kindergarten teacher. And that was my dream job to always be a teacher. And he was living his dream job of building houses. And we were always very active in our church and serving in our church. We were leaders of our um, small group. And honestly, like, that's what we did. We hung out with our small group, the, the people in our small group, and they became our um, some of our best friends. And we did life together. And then we started having kids. And we, uh, my husband and I had our first um, daughter in 2009, and then our second daughter in 2012. And like I said, life was going well. 
But in 2014, I started to see a big shift. I noticed that my husband was getting more and more stressed at work. Um, He seemed to be very anxious a lot and also in a state of depression. And I don't know if you're out there like I am. I just didn't know what to do. And so I just tried to, as much as I could, just keep the peace in our house, keep our kids under control the best you can with two young children. Um, But then I slowly, like I said, started to see that shift. He stopped wanting to be involved in our kids' lives as much. And then I noticed that he was getting sick more often. And to the point where we even sought out the doctors to get help. And we had his stomach scoped to make sure everything was okay because he had been getting, throwing up a lot more than normal. Um, And he already, we already knew he had a lot of acid reflux and all of that. Um, But then I also started to notice especially in the evenings when we would do our nightly Bible story with our kids and pray that he wasn't always able to be with us. And when he was, he was slurring his words a lot. Now, if you're out there listening, you're thinking, oh yeah, if he was slurring his words, he's probably drunk. But that wasn't even on my radar because we didn't even keep alcohol or we were never involved in like the party scenes or going out or any of that. So that was not on my radar. Um, so out, what I thought was really going on is I thought he had a brain tumor. And so I started to research brain tumors and the, this, what that is, the causes and the, what that looks like. And just started to go crazy trying to figure out what in the world was going on with my husband. What was he sick with per se? Um, again, I had no clue what was really going on. Um, But his stress level just kept going up and up and up. And then soon I began noticing I was walking on eggshells um, just to make sure the peace. But this was all just happening under our roof. No one else knew what was going on. My coworkers, our church group, our family, we kept what was going on under our roof a secret. And so, like I said, that started in 2014 when I really started to see that shift. In 2015, it just kept getting worse and worse. And we finally, we have a friend who's a counselor. And so we asked her, do you have anyone that you can recommend um, for my husband to talk to about his anxiety? And so we, he sought out this counselor and started seeing him, but I thought this would fix it. I was like, okay, he has a counselor. This is going to fix all our problems that we're having. Um, But it didn't. And honestly, to tell you the truth, it seemed to get worse and not better. And I'm sure some of you out there can relate to that, where things just, you think you figured it out, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And then came February 23rd. um, And I know... Dates, I just can remember dates very easily. February 23rd, I was teaching and it was a snowy day and kids were getting checked out left and right. And my poor kid was a teacher's kid, so she had to stay at school until mom was done. And 
So we finally were able to leave school and picked up my other daughter. And I was trying to get a hold of my husband to let him know, like, we were coming home because, you know, it's snowy and icy out there. I wanted him to know we were on the road um, just in case anything happened. And I never heard anything. He didn't answer his phone. He wasn't responding to text messages, nothing. And so I just slowly drove home. We got home and I told the girls, I got out their snow stuff and told them to start getting ready. And my husband was, now I can say he was passed out in a chair, but he was just lounged back asleep and just kind of in a fog, I would say. And he still wasn't that responsive. The fi- There's a fire going in our fireplace, but... The girls started getting ready. I went back to help them. And the next thing I know is my husband's yelling from our living room, help, help, help. And so I ran and he was like face down. He had fallen face down on our rug. And I just didn't know what to do. What What's going on? Are you hurt? What's going on? And um, he started to get sick again. And so I... I didn't know what to do, so I called his parents, and they came over to help, and his sister came and got our girls to take them back to her house, and we we had no clue. Do we take him to the hospital? What's going on? He couldn't really tell us what was going on, and so the next day, um, thankfully, school was canceled, and I was able to take him to the doctor, and we, you know, the doctor kind of talked to him a little bit and prescribed Xanax for him, and if you are out there listening, if you're like me, I didn't know anything what Xanax was or wasn't, and what I know today is it is a very addictive drug, and my husband wasn't being honest with the doctor, so I can't blame the doctor for that. But this doctor prescribed Xanax for his anxiety, but he also prescribed Ambien, which is also a sleeping pill to help him sleep at night. So my thought was like, okay, great. He has a counselor for his anxiety. Wonderful. Now he has medicine. This is going to fix our problem, right? Well, it actually, like I said earlier, it got worse and it just got worse. He started not eating. He he was sleeping a lot. He just wasn't doing his job. He was home early from work and um, not involved in our kids' lives. And so then I started um, as a fixer. I started to go into a detective mode thinking, okay, what is going on? Like, is And I truly thought this is what the rest of our lives were going to be like, that he would be depressed. He would be sleeping in bed every day when I would come home. He wouldn't join in on family dinners or our nightly Bible studies or taking our girls to gymnastics or their events. And I thought this is how my life is going to be for the rest of my life. And what, how? This I can't live like this, but I also can't leave my husband. Um, I'm a school teacher in the state of Oklahoma with two kids. How can I be a single mom? And how can I leave my husband like this? And, you know, thinking back to our vows that we made in sickness and in health. And so things like continue just to get worse and worse and worse. And then our daughter's, it was our daughter's third birthday leading up to it. And she's just a little princess. And we were having this fun little princess birthday party. And, 
you know, leading up to the week, there are some things that need to be done around the house, you know, to have this birthday party at our house. And he slowly was getting it done, but I was doing a lot of stuff outside. And that week I started to find bottles and I found some empty beer bottles and some empty vodka bottles, but I thought it came from, honestly, maybe our neighbor and our neighbors next door, they, you know, I had seen them outside drinking before. So I was like, well, maybe they're throwing them over the fence. And so I just, you know, kind of put that on the backside. But then I started thinking of some of his behaviors I had been seeing, the slurring of the words, the, you know, the not eating, the being depressed, the sleep, you know, sleeping all the time. And so I approached my father-in-law about it actually. And he's like, oh no, um, that's not his. I've, you know, I've seen some of these, um, out and about, you know, these are sometimes we have to pick stuff up on job sites and stuff. I'm like, okay. And, but it was still kind of in the back of my head. Is he drinking? Um, like I said, though, we just didn't do that. We didn't keep it at our house. We didn't do, you know, we didn't go out and party or do any of that. Um, it was so Saturday of my daughter's birthday. Um, I just let my husband sleep. I was like, I'm going to let him sleep so that he can be present for the party. And he got up and things were going well. And I was like, okay, we're going to make it. It's going to be a good day. And my sister-in-law was so nice to come over and help me clean and get things ready. And we even talked about how, okay, it's going to be a good day. He's doing well. My sister-in-law left and within 30 minutes of her leaving, there my husband was in his chair, kicked back, he kicked off his shoes in just almost a daze. And I was asking him to do things and he's like, I'll get to it later. And I was like, he can't stay for this party. And I didn't know what to do. And um, at this point, only his parents and sister really knew what was going on. My family didn't know anything. Our friends didn't know. And you would think, you know, being involved in a church in a small group, we would be talking. And, but we didn't. We kept this behind closed doors because I was afraid of what people would be thinking of us. And, so here comes my parents showed up from Kansas and they saw how he was. And we thought my dad's like, he's over medicated. We, we really thought maybe he was over medicated. Again, we didn't know anything about Xanax or any of that at the time. And, um, I knew he couldn't stay for the party. And so, uh, my father-in-law and brother-in-law took him back to their house and that's where he was for during the party. And they even said that he had trouble walking up the stairs. And so I know if you're listening out there, you're like, how do you not know he's drunk? Right? I mean, anyone that would probably see him would think he's drunk, but I just didn't believe it. Even though it was happening in front of my eyes, I just couldn't believe it. That that would be it. So they took him back um, to their house. We had the party and, you know, I honestly was lying to our friends that were there. Oh, Shane's not feeling well. Um, and so he's, we sent him to, you know, my brother-in-law's house to stay for the party. And, you know, there's those lies that we all make. And I know you're out there listening, making lies and excuses for your loved ones, trying to cover it up. Maybe you're trying to protect them or protect yourself. I think a lot of the times we're think we're protecting them, but we're really doing that, making those excuses 
thinking it's our fault that, so making these excuses protects us as well. And we had the party and she, it was the best little princess birthday party. She blushed and got, I mean, it was all about her. And that night, um, my parents um, were, we had already planned. They were going to take our girls up to Kansas for part of spring break. And um, so I went to dinner with them and they took the girls. And when I got home, my husband was there and we just kind of went back to bed and started watching some TV And the next thing I know is he jumps up, he gets up and says, I need to get some water. And in my gut, I was like, I need to go check on him. And so I jumped up and ran across the house. And that's when I finally found my answer. My husband had been hiding vodka and drinking in our garage for who knows how long. But as one of those, it was a sense of relief. I had my answer that, no, he doesn't have a brain tumor. No, you know, all these things that I thought was going on. But what do I do with this? He's hiding it. He's being sneaky. Is he an alcoholic? What does that even mean? Is he addicted to this? What's my next step? And so I just stood there and that whole night I cried and didn't know what to do. But the next day I put on my dress and I went to church and I couldn't even make it through um, the church service because I didn't know what to do. And two of my friends could tell I was carrying a heavy load and they came back and I was able to truly open up to them what had been going on. And that night, that day, uh, my friend had just heard Lance Lang, the founder of Hope is Alive, speak. And so she started to try to give me some resources. And I'm so grateful for her and that she had listened to Lance and we were able to get in touch with him. And, you know, she pulled out her little notebook and tried to, you know, share with me. But honestly, she hadn't been personally impacted by it. Um... And so the best thing for her to do was to honestly pray for me and for my husband. And so we got in touch. My husband got in touch with Lance, got a counselor, started doing that. And I would say he was probably sober for about a month. And then that cycle, those symptoms started again, the not being involved, the not eating, the sleeping, all those things started to happen again. And um, I was in contact with his counselor and telling him my worries and all of this. And um, he started um, kind of stepping back from counseling a little bit instead of going weekly, was going every other week. And then his counselor's like, we can go monthly. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. But um, I, you know, I let, you know, that's what he did. He started going monthly and um, things just got really bad, I would say, you know, it got worse and worse and worse. And um To the point where he, you know, I was finally able to talk to his counselor. We got him back into counseling weekly and group counseling and his counselor had him trying to keep him accountable, sending him breathalyzers and all this stuff. And I remember we transitioned into summer of 2015 and he had to go to group counseling and didn't want to. And I was like, no, you're going. And so I drove him and I knew he was probably drunk. And, but I was like, I'm taking you there. This is what you're doing. He was still denying it to me. The way home, I cried the whole way. And I tell people that's when I hit my rock bottom as a loved one. 
of an addict. And we hear all the time, oh, they just need to hit their rock bottom. Oh, they just need to hit their rock bottoms. But I believe out there, if you're listening and you love someone addicted to drugs or alcohol, we also need to hit our rock bottoms. And that, I would say, was where my shift started, where I started to change and focus more back on me and knew something had to change. I had started Googling Google before all this. I tell people, I Google, Googled out. How do I fix my husband? What do I do? I was a detective looking, searching, digging through dumpsters, looking through the garage, going up in the attic, looking on the side, looking everywhere for evidence. And I, you know, looking back now, it's like, you know, yes, I'd have evidence, but if I would pour it out, he would just go get more, you know, like, and find a better hiding spot. Um, so he, that night when I hit my rock bottom, um, the next day I reached out to get a counselor for myself. And a little bit of that was, I wanted my, the counselor to tell me how to fix my husband. And honestly, I wanted the counselor to tell me it was okay to leave my husband. And so during the summer, um, I would escape to Kansas a lot to be with my parents just to get out of the chaos that it is, the eggshells we're walking on day in and day out. And I wanted my kids to be able to enjoy their summer. I wanted myself as a school teacher to be able to enjoy my summer and have a stress-free summer. And there's one day I was coming back from Kansas and my mother-in-law called and said that they needed to take my husband to the ER because he was dehydrated. And I nicely said, well, he's probably drinking and and he had done a breathalyzer and it was zero and she was real concerned about him being dehydrated. And so I dropped my kids off at a friend's house, the two friends that knew one of the friend's house. And I stood in her kitchen. I looked at her and said, Sarah, my prayer is that someday I will be able to help another wife, whether Shane gets sober or not. And I truly believe at that moment, I knew God put us in this storm for a purpose. And I didn't know if my husband was going to get out of the storm, but I knew I was going to be okay someday and that I was going to get out of the storm. I didn't know how to get out of the storm at the time, but I knew that someday I just wanted to help one other person. And I ended up that night at the ER and my husband's um, blood alcohol level was over three times the legal limit. And so um, that night, I talked about my rock bottom that night, I would say I put up my first firm boundary. I told him he wasn't allowed to come back home until he was healthy. And honestly, guys, if you're listening out there, you're like, what would this that mean? I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant to be healthy. I didn't know what that meant for him or for me. But I just knew I couldn't have him at home anymore. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for our kids. And ultimately, it wasn't good for him. Like, he needed to find some help. So I set up that boundary that he wasn't allowed to come home until he was healthy. He um, reached out to his counselor and told his counselor the truth, what had been going on. And his counselor was able to get him set up um, with a rehab and he went to rehab and I was scared to death guys. I had no clue. You know, I feel like, you know, before addiction came into my house, like you don't understand it unless you live it and you don't think it will happen to you. You don't think it will happen to someone that was, my husband was raised in the church and a good family. You just don't think it will happen, but it does. It does not discriminate. It doesn't matter your upbringing. It doesn't matter your job. It doesn't matter, um, 
the color of your skin, it just doesn't matter. It will go after anyone and everyone because the enemy wants to destroy families with this disease. And it wants families to feel that shame and guilt and hopelessness. So if you're out there listening, I want you to know you're not alone and to seek help for yourself, just like I did, reaching out for that first counselor and starting that journey of myself in recovery. And as my husband's counselor recommended rehab, I had reached out to Lance as well. And I kind of mentioned this in the last podcast and Lance was so helpful and um, gave me some resource for my husband, but also had me, encouraged me to go to a Finding Hope meeting. And I was scared to death to go. And, um, but one of my friends had just opened up to me about her husband, um, abusing alcohol as well. And so I was able to call her and we went to our first Finding Hope meeting. I tell people all, I wore my nicest outfit, made sure my hair was perfect and my makeup because I was afraid what people would think. And I was afraid of judgment. Um, But when I walked in, I realized these people got it. They weren't judging me. They were loving me. They understood they didn't care if I my hair was clean or if I had makeup on or if I had um, yoga pants on or my best dress. They wanted to love on me and support me because they understood. And so I learned I didn't have to go through this alone anymore. And I don't want you out there to go through this alone anymore. Seek help for yourself. Reach out to someone who understands. We're not made to go through these storms alone. That enemy keeps us and thinks we are. And I learned through these meetings that it's not my fault. I, If you're out there and you do the blame, if I did this, if I did that, you need to stop because the ifs will drive you crazy. You won't sleep at night. It's not your fault. Can you contribute to it by enabling? Absolutely. But it's not your fault that your loved one is addicted to drugs or alcohol. If I wasn't my husband's wife, if he would have married somebody else, he still would be an alcoholic today. That's just how his brain is. That's And so it's not your fault. And I saw hope. I saw people smiling. And I wanted that smile. And I, I was a little bit angry, guys. I'm not going to lie. Like, why are you smiling? Um, my husband's addicted to alcohol and my family's being destroyed. And yet coming to the support group and you're smiling. But they had hope. They had found peace, whether their loved ones were sober or not. And I knew I wanted that. And I discovered these are my people. My friends that came over that night at church, They were so gracious to come over and support me and pray with me, but they didn't get it because it wasn't under their roof like it was under my roof. But these people got it. I continued to go and learn and learn the terms. People would say enabling, boundaries, codependency. And if you're out there listening and you're hearing me throw these words out and you don't know what they are, that's okay. Because we will talk through that here. And that's what, I didn't know any of those words. I probably couldn't tell you what was said at the first six months of those meetings, but I was in a community with people who understood. And there are some times that I was resentful for having to go, finding childcare and all of that. But I'm so grateful I did that. And because of those meetings, I have tools. I found strength. I have a new family. Just two years ago, my husband had five years clean and sober. And two years ago, he relapsed. 
And I was at, because of finding hope in my community, I was able to get through the relapse in a much healthier way than I would have been if I hadn't been going to meetings. So some of you are like, oh, my loved one's four years sober. I don't need this. You do. You need a community because these tools aren't just to work with your, you know, with your loved one that's an addiction. It's helped me in life with other families and friends and coworkers. So if you're out there listening and my story relates to you and I just, and you're in the middle of the storm, my prayer is that, um, that you would someday be where I am, have that peace and the hope, whether or not your loved one gets sober or not. And I want to leave you with this verse. It's Psalm 34, 17 through 18. It says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is new, near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So I want to leave you each week with a challenge. And so my challenge goes back to that verse, Psalms 34, 17 through 18. I want you to give the storm that you're in. Give it to God. Allow him to help you get through the storm and out of the storm and give your loved one to God and allow God to get your loved one out of the storm. He knows the path and how your loved one needs to get out of the storm. So allow him to do what only he can do and just continue to surrender yourself and your loved one to God and to remember that he will He is near, he hears you, and he will save you, and he will deliver us and your loved ones from our troubles. And I also want to encourage you to stop being that detective like I was. Stop being the fixer in all that energy you are using to look, to fix, to Google and find all how to get your loved ones sober and clean. Put that energy back on yourself. Maybe today, instead of going to Google, that five minutes, give yourself that five minutes. What can you do today for five minutes for yourself and do it? So I just want to say thank you so much for joining me this week. And you can learn more about Finding Hope at findinghope.today. But before you go, I would love for you to give us a five-star review Share this on social media and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next hope-filled episode. Thanks again for joining me, Amy LaRue, in this episode of Finding Hope. And remember, you are not alone. It's not your fault. There is hope. This episode of the Finding Hope podcast was brought to you by Hope is Alive Ministries. To learn more about Hope is Alive, visit our website at hopeisalive.net. If you are in need of immediate assistance, don't wait. Call us now at 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. To find out more about Finding Hope and how you can get involved in a meeting close to you, visit findinghope.today.